Good morning, everybody. I'm your host on Ask a Leader, Claudia Shamba, welcoming you to the May 28, 2013 edition of Ask a Leader. Today, we continue to honor our veterans, especially those of whom are affiliated at UCI. That's Army Specialist Jessica Garcia and Army Sergeant Drill Sergeant Staff Sergeant, that's what happens when I put these things just a little bit the shade of the, before the show. Tanisha Santana in Studio A today with me. Then Barry Glasner, author of The Culture of Fear, Why Americans Are Afraid of the Wrong Things, will take up his ongoing investigation into how fear, dread, and uncertainty are constantly planted by the collusion of the media and our own government. Please don't go away. We'll be right back after a short one. Everybody, thank you for staying with us. My first guests joining me in Studio A are Army Specialist. I'm going to make sure I've got my, there is my little mic. Army Specialist Jessica Garcia and Army Sergeant Tanisha Santana joining at the age of 18. Tanisha Santana has served the U.S. Army for eight years. Out of those eight years, she was fortunate never to have served in either Iraq or or Afghanistan. She was originally from Missouri and has lived in California with her daughter for almost seven years now. She is a single parent to a daughter, goldfish, and guinea pig. Tanisha's major is sociology. She plans to attend graduate school in order to receive a license in social work and would love to one day have her own practice. We'll hang the shingle here right now and ahead of that certification to provide counseling and therapy. Hailing from Santa Ana and afterward uh, attending Saddleback High School, Jessica Garcia joined the Army in December 2005 when she was 19 years old. Her MOS, boy, do I want these alphabet soups to get uh, distilled for us. Her MOS was, actually, I'm going to let her uh, do that. Her MOS? It's at 35 Mike, human intelligence collector, basically an interrogator. Okay, interrogator. I wasn't sure if that was a a firearm. uh, Okay. In January 2006, (laughs) she was assigned to the 572nd uh, MICO 5th Combat Brigade 2nd Infantry. What's the MICO stand for? Uh, It's MICO. Military Intelligence Company. Okay. All right. So, see, they've already maxed out beyond my capacity in cognitive <laughs> skills. From, from there, she was attached to Bravo Company, 117 uh, Field Artillery. Her squad was attached to the artil- artillery battalion, and from there, each soldier was then sent the companies, um, to the companies and battalion. She'll explain that, I hope. When they did field training for three weeks at a time, she was the only female among 120 or more men. And over a year, the Bravo Company acclimated to her, eventually treating her like one of the guys. I think that might be a safer way if they treat one of the guys. Mm. In 2008, she had an accident which left her with an injured spine. We'll take that up with her research she's done toward getting her degree. And after working on her recovery for two years, in 2010, she was medically discharged from the Army. The highest rank she re- achieved was specialist. She met her husband while in the Army, Army and they have two children, Olivia, age three, and Jimmy, three months. 
Um, they celebrated their fifth wedding anniversary on the 23rd of May. She transferred to UCI in the fall of 2011 and now will graduate this June with a political science degree. She works Get a load of this schedule, folks. She works full-time along with being a full-time student. And remember, I mentioned those two little sweethearts. Uh, she's maintained a GPA of 3.57. Besides talking about their military service, a little bit about that and their transition here on the campus, thereafter, both Tanisha Santana and Jessica Garcia will talk about their research that they are completing at UCI. It is a privilege to have both of them join me here in Studio A. Welcome to the show, both of you ladies. Thank you. Thank you. So I want to first, well, let's congratulate Jessica on earning your degree. It's just a just a few finals away and that finish right. up the paper. So congratulations. And then, of course, on your fifth wedding anniversary. Oh, thank you. So, um, Jessica, tell us uh, about the fact that you were attached to an all-male unit, not a sign, um, which women are not technically allowed on the front line as nope. assigned soldiers, but they can be attached. What does that all mean to we just clueless civilians? Uh, when you're assigned to a unit, um, whenever that unit, say, gets a unit award, then um, you also get that award. But if you're just attached, you're just kind of like attached. You're you know? honorific. Yeah. Ad hoc. Yeah, ad hoc. You're just added. So being the only female, you know, into an all-male unit was uh, it was it was interesting. You had to learn how to act like a dude. That's basically what my staff sergeant, who also was a female, who was an interrogator, and she's been deployed about three times. And she was telling me, "You have to act like a dude, or else they will not respect you. If you act like a girly girl, they're not gonna listen to you." Now that means that you're um, you're soldiers in arms, but and also the ones you're interrogating act like a dude for all of them. Yeah. Okay. Wow. So. Um, we're, uh, we're in preparing for the show, we were talking about uh, the transition to being a part of, uh, of this academic, and it's, a, it's mm -hmm. a young subculture here. So I'd like to hear from both of you what it was like transitioning from a disciplined, account, highly accountable, highly applied military uh, capacity into uh, how students sort of conduct themselves in a classroom setting. Jessica, you had a little something to say about that already, and let Tanisha sort of formulate that, too, while she's listening. Oh. Uh, I don't know. When I first uh, started, I went to OCC, and uh, I would just I would show up and sit down in the front seat, listen to the, what the professor had to say, and leave. I would never stay behind and talk to any of the students. I always thought they were disrespectful because they were either on their cell phone or they were talking. And I just remember being in the Army when someone is up front speaking, you have to be quiet or else they're going to take you outside and take care of you outside. So, Write you up. Uh, uh, yeah. Either Or you have to, it's called a smoking session where they usually make you do some embarrassing things or you do a whole bunch of push-ups, like you shouldn't talk, your cell phone went off. <laughs> yeah, things like that. Right, Tanisha? Somewhat. Real close. Tanisha, we're going to have you come real close to that mic. Uh, excellent. Go ahead. Yeah. Um, my experience it was a little different. Like I, I've been out now for a few years, for about seven years now. So when I first started going to college and everything, when when I got out, um, there were a lot of adult learners. Yes. Um, it's it's a diverse population in community college. So mm -hmm. it, it, you get used to it. it. It's like you paying your way in to go into school. You're used to it. Then transferring here, it's not as bad. Um, I started here during the summer session, so 
I got to befriend a lot of the students here and I get along with them today. We're good friends. We hang out and um, it, it wasn't a big problem for me. I do notice there are some students like in my classes now that I just want to turn around and say, shut up. Smack them. Right. right. You've right. got a nice hard military form smack, but yeah. I, wow. <laughs> Oh, yeah, but it's I I haven't had a a problem with students being loud and and obnoxious too much. Um, it's been a easy going. And Jessica, um, you were saying that you knew that they 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 know who the military returnee is into usually, the, in the classroom. The usually, students. I can tell. You can tell. Maybe I, they're, they don't tell. Maybe they can't tell because they're probably not paying attention. But usually yeah. if you're a veteran, you can tell what, who other veterans are in the well, classroom. An interrogator is going to read a lot more cues than a, a civilian <laughs> anyway, correct? That, that's probably true. <laughs> wow. So um, there's a lot to cover. In, um, I don't know if you want to say some more about that. I don't, I, I don't know. that is the veteran services working for you in making that transition, getting you more in touch with your peers, your veteran peers on the campus? We can talk about that before we yeah. pile into all this wonderful research that you've done. The veteran services office has helped out so much just getting to know the n new friends. And I, I worked in the office. so Oh, good. It was, um, it was pretty cool. I got to reach out and, and a lot of the quiet students in because you do have a lot of the vets they come in they just get their paperwork done they don't want to really communicate with others but I'm I'm very sociable so I, it's easy for people to come up to me and or I'll make you talk <laughs> okay and so, it's, mm -hmm. it's um it's a good environment just for them to get to know each other and we start also started the veterans fraternity um, Alpha Psi Omega yep and that's been a good it's been a good environment also getting vets to um i don't know become a little familiar with the campus and having a, a social group a social network on mm -hmm. the campus as well Just building community yeah. yeah building community and sharing resources mm -hmm. attaching and um integrating into that larger sort of campus society that right. kind of a thing and um and i'm kind of curious because i know undergrads don't get how much of a resource they have in faculty those office hours are for real but they they underestimate how accessible a faculty might be and how uh, much the faculty will, uh, is willing to give up those. You know, that's, those yeah. hours are posted for a reason. Right. Uh, in your military sorts of frames of reference, do you, uh, are you more readily, do you think, uh, uh, inclined to take up the faculty on those kinds of offers of resources? I do go to office hours if it, with the classes that are in my major. Mm -hmm. um, at time, In the beginning, I didn't, and I think Within my third quarter here, I found them very useful because even if you don't have questions, I find you can just go chit chat and get to know the professor that you're working with, and um, it it helps you out. It actually helps you out. Um, but a lot of vets and even a lot of students, you're so busy, you don't take the time to go to office hours to, um, I guess, get a better understanding mm -hmm. of what you would need to know feel like you've got to be ready with a real directed question yeah. before going in. Right. Yes, Jessica? I, I, I don't know. Having kids and everything, I always made sure the first day in class, the professor knew who I was and where I come from. Because my husband's still in the National Guard. In fact, I just dropped him off at 3 o'clock in the morning. Yes, that's right. <laughs> to go for uh -huh. a, a three-week training in uh, in Candace. So right now I'm left with, uh, you know, two kids and my, my son is teething. Oh, <laughs> teething. We already yeah. talked about the full-time job, yeah. full-time, and you want to get your degree. You're going to get the degree, and oh, it's, yeah. 
this is a this is so much multitasking. I'm I'm ready to explode thinking about that. It's, okay. it's a lot. Yeah. I I did the same thing before. I would work forty hours a week at my job, um, try to find a babysitter for my daughter, daycare everything, um, drop her off almost as soon as I picked her up from school, and go to class at night mm-hmm. just to finish. And it gets a little hectic. It does. But There's no sleep. There really isn't. None. No. Uh, you two are exquisite here, right with me in the ra- <laughs> just exuding all this can do and a, a whole flair. I just I'm, I, for those of you who have just joined us, you're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM, streaming all over the world wherever we have bases on KUCI.org. And my guests are Army Specialist Jessica Garcia and Sergeant Tanisha Santana. They are both now discharged from uh, the Army, as they've talked about. And it's really, it is time, folks, that we move in directly with all the time remaining on the research papers that they're completing at this uh, this final quarter here. We'll start with Jessica, who's been um, doing some studying investigating health care for veteran women over the years, that is from Vietnam to the present. And as you say, Jessica, women have become the fastest growing segment of new users. What kinds of improvements does the military need to make to accommodate them? Well, right now, they actually are doing it right now. Um, they're trying to play catch up. In fact, they didn't start doing statistics on women veterans until 1980 census. Oh. Yes. Uh, before that, they estimated that there were about 500,000 women veterans. And they and, were unaccounted for up until 1980. And so up until nine, that's what they thought they estimated because they didn't have a really good, I guess, filing or keeping track of the system of how Oops. many women actually did you know, World War II veterans and whatnot. Uh, after the 1980 census, they realized they had about uh, 1.2 million women veterans. And they, yeah, they were a little off in their numbers. Um, you know, from there, they, they started doing research. Uh, it was very slow, actually. Um, in 2004, um, they did a uh, review of like women research and literature and everything, and they realized that there wasn't much done. Um, in fact, that more research has been done in the past five years than the past 25 years. Wow. Yeah. And about how women adjust uh, from any, everything to uh, mental health, to what happens uh, for physical, and then also um, unemployment, you know, things like that. And you were saying, um, and you're a case uh, in point you're about your, uh, in your observation and research, that women are more likely to experience non-battle trauma-related injuries than men, yet, uh, and as I quote you, most technologies for treating wounded military personnel are designed for male soldiers. So how are you faring with your spine injury? My spine injury? Actually, I don't use the VA for that. I actually... Wow. Um, yeah. Uh, I I should. My husband goes, you should go. I'm like, eh, I don't really have time to go and go to Long Beach because I'm really busy. Um, so I just use uh, the insurance that I have now through work and I just see my primary care specialist. So that's it. So then there is an underutilization of of services for which it's funny. military personnel are eligible. It is kind of funny. Uh, there is an underutilization for women, but they're also the fastest growing segment oh, wow. in uh, veteran hospitals. Okay. Well, how is how are you doing with your spine injury? That's a pretty... You know, you know what? You're reminded of that all the time. Uh, you know, I get pain every now and then. When uh, I was in the military, there's... Uh, I remember one time, a 
because I thought I could do it. I'm like, I can go deploy, I can do all that. And then my, I had a relapse and I was actually on my back for like three days and my husband had to take care of me. Yeah, he had to like pick me up and do it. And I was in so much pain and that rivaled giving birth. (laughs) It did. Yeah. But that's on a birth is done with at a certain point, but the spine injury, you crawl along with it. You go along with it. And I didn't want to take any medicine. They give you so many pills in the army. They give you, they give me Vicodin. What did they give me? Uh, Morphine, Valium. They gave me a whole bunch of pills I could take. And you're supposed to be a full-time parent, student, and worker on that stuff? No, no. This is when I was in the military. In the military. military. Just one and a half jobs. And I'm just like, okay, that's, I'm not taking these medications. I'd just rather work through the pain. And then I talked to the spinal surgeon because he's like, I can't really do anything with that. Um, Because I was running probably about 30 miles every week. With the injury? Yeah, with the, with the injury, because you have to drive on in the military. You can't can't stop. So you're exacerbating your injury. Oops. Your neck's not being treated. Uh, yeah, apparently you need a spine. Con- so oh. I decided to to actually get medboarded out and get out of the military medical discharge. Okay, that's how you that's how you treated your injury. You yeah. withdrew. I withdrew because I, I could not keep up with that pace with my back. <sighs> Man. Yeah. But now it's not too bad. I, it hurts every once in a while, like maybe three times a week. Well, you're young too, so it's a yeah, yeah. I don't the shoe wanna, hasn't dropped yet, so we. I don't want to wait till I'm old. No, no, I don't no, talk no. About that. <laughs> so um, um, then, uh, your that's a case in point. So what else did you want to say about the um, the challenges that the VA is facing with uh, with female veteran health? Because now we're we're talking about post traumatic stress disorder. We're talking about the sexual assaults, and we're going to let Tanisha talk about that full blown there with the yeah. with There's, the case studies and things like that. But I actually did an interview with one of the lead researchers in women veteran healthcare, and I asked a few questions about how long does it take, say that procedure X will definitely help out, you know, women this ha- uh, in this area and whatnot. And she said it takes about seventeen years from Brent's side to to bed to bedside, like which side was the first one? The, the, to like Bur- research side okay, to actually. Brent. All right, here's an idea. We're going to research it. We can get the funding, and then they're going to research it, and then it goes to the VA hospital. It has to go through a whole bunch of procedures saying this is the procedure that we need, but it takes about 17 years. So right now they're doing, they're playing catch-up right now with all the women veterans that are coming back from Iraq and, and Afghanistan. They're, doing, they're do, playing catch-up. So basically all the research they're doing now on women veterans is for, like, a future war. It's not really for this one. Um, they have made strides in areas like mental health, mm-hmm. but they're still discovering, you know, there's more to it, like TBI. Um, Traumatic brain injury. Yes, uh, that women respond to different treatments. So they're, they're, still, they're still, like, you know, adjusting their procedures and how to treat women. And, you know, not that to say that the VA, you know, treats women poorly. I mean, they have great services. It's just that they're trying to play catch up because it's a male-dominated system. Well, I hope that um, you'll be able, I know when you finish your degree here, um, your your work is done, but I'm hoping that um, you can sort of, you know, hand off this research project and have more of the students that are enrolled here and, and connected with the Veterans Center can continue to develop this and that it that becomes, a, you know, a, a major advocacy piece for um, it. You're getting your due, for goodness sake. Well, I I don't mean to make light of it when I shift to what Tanisha's research has been, but I do want to make sure uh, we give her some due here. There, It's a, a, just a phenomenal number of um, case studies uh, that in 
the military sexual trauma that you have studied, that includes uh, uh, rape, aggravated sexual assault, aggravated sexual contact, abusive sexual contact, wrongful sexual contact, indecent assault, and forcible sodomy. So um, we're you're looking. I I, I actually want to quote some of the women's voices if we can. Or did you want to oh. did you want to read them? Oh. We've got Grace, Glenda, Rebecca, anyway. and Bridget. And why don't you and your voice, uh, you know, quote what those women have said about their experience with being assaulted in while serving in the military. Okay, no problem. Um, these are just a few quotes, like she mentioned, um, that kind of highlighted my thesis of what's going on and, and these women going through such traumatic experiences and not being taken care of. Um, from Grace, you here. We would drive past male soldiers on the base and they made hand signals for different sexual things that they wanted to do to someone i mean these guys were married and most of them their wives were pregnant you know at home with their kids or just had kids and they were deployed but you know they did it even more when i would say you know you need to stop and then i brought it up to my superiors i was like this needs to stop this is just getting ridiculous and it went on and even worse and they did nothing they did absolutely nothing and from glenda was pretty similar she stated one of the problems over in Iraq for female soldiers is that there's a lot of sexual harassment and rape is huge. And it does not matter if you're 18 or 58. It doesn't matter. Women serving over there don't have to be worried about enemy fire. They have to be worried about the guy that's next to them, you know, mm. that's supposed to be protecting and taking care of them. And a lot of times he becomes like public enemy number one for them. And for Rebecca, she stated, um, Rebecca was a former army sergeant. Um, she sought help from a, a chaplain, which is like a priest, a pastor in the military. Right. After she was raped by a fellow service member in Afghanistan in 2007, the chaplain told her the rape was God's will and that God was trying to get her attention so that she would go back to church. Six months later, when pictures of her taken during the rape surfaced online, she decided to report it. After a humiliating series of interviews about the incident, the rapist chain of command refused to pursue charges and subsequently closed the case. Her villa, uh, Rebecca, she felt that the military criminal justice system is broken, and it's true, it is broken. And Jessica's nodding her head for those of you who can't get that, uh, yeah. that visual cue here. Yes, go ahead, Tanisha. And from Bridget, um, Bridget McCoy, she was raped on her first military assignment two weeks before her 19th birthday. <sighs> And that's when a lot of soldiers joined the military right after high school. Uh, so later that year, she was raped by another soldier in her unit. Then came sexual harassment by two officers, which you would go to who you report right. if you were raped right. at the top of your chain command. Mm. And including one who requested that she be moved to work directly for him. So she testified before lawyers and the former, former army specialist described the anguish and entrapment she felt and the horror of the ordeal that followed. She stated that I no longer have any faith or hope that the military chain of command will consistently prosecute, convict, sentence, and carry out the sentencing of sexual predators in uniform without absconding justice somehow. And it, it's remarkable oh. that the 
percentage of women in the military, a higher percentage of them are being assaulted than in the civilian population. Right, right. And conversely, a higher percentage of civilian cases are being litigated than are in the military. So it's sort of a double-edged insult in, in um, justice being met and, exactly. and trauma c- carrying on. So I'm, I don't know if you have any reason for uh, feeling some like some that help is on the way with what Secretary of Defense uh, Chuck Hagel is saying? Uh, is he? Uh, are you feeling like? I mean, we've got on the top the chief executive is is clamoring for um, dealing with this unacceptable condition, but are you feeling like the brass hears it is acting on it? I feel that it's more of a cultural problem now, and it's gone so far out of hand. It's kind of hard to stop because. They, they've implemented things to to stop this for a while. They have the Sharps program. A little little brochures and, and manuals laying all over the place. Exactly. But operationalizing that is a whole heady other Ex- project. Exactly. Yeah. But I, I don't know if you heard of the Invisible War. Yes, Let's, that's required viewing. I still haven't seen it myself, but so you're signing on to that being required viewing. Right. It's a great documentary to watch. and But it's really sad how they... They highlight all of these stories, what's going on, but in the documentary, they point out, you know, pretty much saying it's up to the woman to protect herself. You need to carry your battle buddy. You need to watch behind you. You need to make sure you go out when it's lit. It's still kind of pointing the finger that it's your fault if you don't follow these rules, you're asking for it. Yes. Yeah. So it's, when I ask. That's what you're taught, taught basically. Oh, wow. I, I remember being put in a room with this other is female. Mm-hmm soldiers who are you know hiring staff sergeants and they're telling like look it's, it's almost like your fault if you if you're dumb enough to go to a, a party where there's mostly men it's your fault if you're dumb enough to you know drink around men and you're alone and you don't have anybody else with you it's your fault and you know you always have to watch your back and you know, that's one of the things i always kept a knife on me it's one thing i always did it's mental things like i always need a knife on me so yeah when i came out of the military i'm like i don't have a knife on me i feel odd you know you, do you still feel like you need one now? Uh, still inclined? I, you know what? Not, 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 not in this space, hopefully. Yeah, not in this space. Oh, right, right, right. Um, well, and you know, and I thought it was really interesting that uh, I approached a, um, a logistics officer in the Air Force around 2009, mm-hmm. and she was adamant there is no sexual assault occurring. And I'm just oh, wondering, and, there are some women and that it just depends that on perhaps the place and the assignment and all she's that. An officer for one thing. An officer and maybe. And in she's in the Air Force. Air Force and logistics. She's not in in the trenches where um, maybe there is a, a that culture is more sort of jacked you up. You were logistics. Yeah, was I was it? logistics. Yeah. But um, it's it's my study also involved soldiers from Israel, as you've seen. Yes, right. There was a colonel, a female colonel, stated the exact same thing about the Israeli army. Oh, there's no problem. Everything's fine here. It's not as bad as the U.S. There are small instances, so it's still kind of covered up. Okay. There. Like here. Exactly. And women officers, they have to watch out for their rank as well. Um, They're friends with other officers. You know, it's a very enclosed environment, and it's very protected. And it's a lot of women, they they have no justice, and it's, it's not only the women, it's also men that are getting raped as well. Yes. Um, yeah. A lot of the, the studies, I went through over 800 studies reading detailed cases, and there there was a guy, he was in a private, he was raped by 
Well, he wasn't raped, but he was sodomized by with a broomstick. That's by, still rape. Right. <laughs> yes. By, by his E6 NCO and also another sergeant. And they said, because you were a snitch, they did that to him. So, And also one case I had, there was an officer, an E6 and an E3. They all ganged up and they raped a private. So it's like if you can't trust your officers and your NCOs, and, and, or you can't really trust any of the men because even the lower enlisted men are ganging up with the higher enlisted men and they're raping lower enlisted together. So it's a, it's wow. a sad culture. It's really, and it's hard to, it's, it's hard like to stop. Mentality. It's so, right. Yeah. And, and just want to, as we're wrapping up, uh, this sort of double victimization, first by the, the perpetrator and then by the system. And so uh, you're, you can't win for, for all the losing going on here. So um, I, I'm just hoping, hoping, well, first of all, I want for people to uh, fully appreciate that, your endorsement of the viewing the film the invisible war that's probably mm-hmm. the most vivid sort of uh, case making uh, mm-hmm. about this as well as the um the actual that the, stories that the brass that... itself the brass itself really summons up you know the the responsibility for addressing how much victimization is going on that it can't mm-hmm. it can't you can't build a military on this kind of corrupting culture and assailing culture right. inside when mm-hmm. women have so much to offer in this to uh, fully uh, broaden what services the military renders. Let yes, Jessica. You, let me give you an example. When I went to the military uh, artillery unit, I would talk to people who are E7s who've been in for about 20 years or maybe E8s. And they said, you are the first female I've ever worked with. And I've been in for 20 years, 15 years, 12 years. They've never worked with a female before me. And I was really shocked. That, right. Because it's, it's all about the culture in the military. You know, if you're an all-male unit, that's an all-male unit. They'll might, they might see, you know, when they go to the PX or, like, to the exchange, they might see a female in uniform, but it's not in their unit. They're not sleeping in the same tent. They're not going out on mission with that It's that a different female. enterprise, shopping and socializing. Yeah, it's not it, carrying out combat. Exactly. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I was really shocked when I, when, I, when, I, when I was with that unit. Like, you've been in the Army for, you know, 15 years. You've never worked with a female. So they would literally look like they were awkward with me. Like, how do I talk to a female? And I'm like... Just how you would talk to a male. It's okay. You're the first white person to show up in an aboriginal culture. Exactly. It was, it was just really, and they would get, give me the strangest looks on their faces. When I first went in my first uh, three-week uh, exercise with them, they stared at me. They're like, why is there a female here? You know, they're like, well, we can't do the same thing. Yeah, you can do the same thing in front of me. It's okay. You know, I've seen, I've, I was married at the time, so I'm like, I've seen a naked man. Trust me. It's, it's funny how they... In the military, like, oh, you can't curse around a female. You can't say anything like that. Well, my unit wasn't like that. I know. Oh, it, I, it, I was in an all-male unit pretty much, too, yeah. going back and forth. Because I work in logistics. So logistics, you're pretty much going to have um, females running that the supply. Running the, the mm-hmm. pretty yep. Yeah. And I was in um, an all-black. They call them men in black. Because <laughs> I was in an infantry unit at, attached to them. But okay. I worked in a motor pool with just mechanics and it is an awkward environment you deal with a lot of cat calls a lot mm-hmm. of harassment a lot of guys that feel they are there since you they're very limited females they're entitled to 
to haze you all the time. Right. And they I feel like it's it a competition. Like, oh, she's the only female here. Let's see who can, he can get to her. Let's see who she'll pick. So the, it's, it's a very masculine, hyper-masculine environment where they're competing against each other. And that it ends up to them doing anything. And they think it's okay. They and think you mean you like that. that. It's corroborated. It is anything, as as you list in your research. Right. Well, well I, I want to, um, the takeaway message is every veteran, every woman veteran needs all the support that we can muster. There is the, um, the website is uh, at, on the campus is uh, double, w vet, excuse me, double, www.veteran.uci.edu. You can follow also what's going on their Facebook page, UC Irvine Services. And um, I, I want, whenever you find a, a veteran, a female veteran, I want all of you to be able to uh, approach them, ask them what, uh, ask them their story with respect and uh, know that there's some things that are not permitted to be asked, but take that veteran's cue about what is permitted, ask them respectfully, and be sure uh, in, in by the time you finished engaging in this uh, encounter that you honor the sacrifice that they have made and the sacrifices. So I want to thank Jessica Garcia and Tanisha Santana, Tanisha Santana here today. Um, we honor your service this year, the year round, and express our gratitude for your thank sacrifice. You. Thank, thank you for being on the show today. Thank you for having us. Thank you. We are going to now um, say go away to an all-important next guest. Uh, that's Dr. Barry Glasner, who is going to talk about fear, dread, and uncertainty mapped out in his book, The Culture of Fear, Why Americans Are Afraid of the Wrong Things. So please don't go away. Thank you, everybody, for joining us here on Ask a Leader. Welcome back to the second half of the show. Um, we just heard from, as I said, the, the, the women uh, veterans, but now we're going to move into our um, second part. Dr. Barry Glasner, president of Lewis and Clark College in Portland, Oregon, and previously executive vice provost and professor of sociology at USC. While an undergraduate, Barry Glasner was a journalist and editor for ABC Radio News at Northwestern University. Dr. Glasner went on to earn master's and doctorate degrees from Washington University in St. Louis. Among the 10 books that he authored, co-authored is The Culture of Fear, Why Americans Are Afraid of the Wrong Things, released originally in 1999 with an updated edition issued in 2010, which is going to be to the focus of today's interview. The book was a national bestseller and was named a Best Book of the Year by Knight Ritter Newspapers and by the LA Times Book Review. Whether you're already, you've already digested this book or you've seen Barry Glasner's articles and commentaries right where subject matters belongs, you have in the media, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, LA Times, as well as in Scholar Reviews, the Chronicle of Higher Education, along with the major publications in his field of sociology, the American Sociological Review, American Journal Psychiatry, among others. He comes to us today from Seattle, Washington. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Dr. Glasner. Are you there? Welcome to Ask a Leader, Dr. Glasner. 
Thank you for inviting me. I just gave your review. I, I didn't see my panel light up, but I just introduced you uh, with your heady background uh, in sociology and how far the culture of fear has been reviewed and appraised and appreciated. So first, I must say how glad I am that you've published your own thinking. The ironies are painful to swallow in all the cases that you cite. The pathologies are invariably more complex than they are p- portrayed, for sure. I think I think you're right. <laughs> so, and you you talk about how, and I, I really, uh, as I say, I, I've savored so many passages in it, and I'm going to quote you on how you talk about how fear is compounded. You say, and I quote, in tracing the history of scares several times, I found that they stay around and reproduce themselves the way mosquitoes do, by attaching to whomever is available. And I guess it's happening now since 1999, and uh, even more so since the edition in 2010, the blogosphere and all the other formats have compounded the the pounding we're taking with the, uh, the fear and the dread. Well, I think that's right. And uh, what's, what's particularly paradoxical about this is that Americans continue to live in one of the safest periods in human history. So, you know, that, that's been true for a long time. And you would think if we live in a very safe period, we wouldn't be so fearful. And yet, uh, by pretty much any indicator you, you look at, we are. And so what I'm really interested in is how did that come about? You know, why are there so many of these fears uh, and, and why are so many of them unfounded uh, and who's promoting them uh, and to what, to what effect? So uh, you mentioned that uh, my book first came out in 1999 and I uh, did a, uh, um, an updated uh, edition just about a year and a half, two years ago now. Uh, that looks at what has remained the same and what has changed uh, post 9-11-2001. And, of course, that event, um, for any of your listeners who are old enough to remember it vividly, um, was pretty serious business and, and legitimately quite frightening, of course, the, the attacks uh, in Washington and, and New York. Um, and then uh, came another very frightening, uh, truly frightening um, Occurrence in the United States several years later, the economic downturn that began in 2007. Uh, and yet, uh, despite those very real dangers, the kinds of overblown uh, fears and scares that I talked about uh, from the 1990s in, in, in the book, I, I really trace the history uh, of these, at least the contemporary history or modern history, back to uh, through the 1970s, 1980s. And right. those scares just can uh, continue on. Right. Uh, well, and I guess you could say that the fears, um, the reaction to 9-11, uh, well, it was a drain that continued into people maybe taking their mind off the, 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 uh, the financial uh, influences occurring that led to uh, a balloon bursting. And so it's a, you're, as you're saying, every drain uh, of our psyches in a fearing uh, perhaps a lesser consequential um, uh, occurrence is draining us from considering what we really have a capacity and must be addressing that affects us. Well, that's right. And, um, you know, let's, let's talk for a minute yes. about the terrorism attacks and uh, uh, the way that we've responded to those. Uh, and you're right, uh, you know, uh, there's been a lot of attention. Now, there, there's, atten- there's deserved attention by those agencies and public officials uh, that need to protect the country. 
Um, I wouldn't minimize that at all. Not to, no. Um, but let's look at what happened, right? So uh, we've had um, one major successful uh, attack in this country um, that was organized um, you know, externally and, and pulled off successfully. Some would argue that there's some elements of that in the recent attack in Boston. I don't think that's clear yet. But everybody can agree that we've certainly had a very major one now quite a while ago in uh, September 11, 2001. Well, when that happened, at first, uh, the estimates of the loss of life uh, were about as high as 50,000 in a lot of the reports. And that was not unreasonable given what was going on. But the actual death toll was just under 3,000, 2,752. Now, then what followed from that? Well, what followed from that was a continual, uh, just unending um, fear campaign uh, that uh, was led by a whole variety of, of groups, um, primarily um, within the media and, and uh, uh, the government and the White House um, during uh, that presidential administration. And again, I think what we need to do is to put things in proportion uh, that's a lot of what I try to do in my book, in the culture of fear. Uh, and if we do that, that year, 2001, of course, was the worst uh, for um, attacks in the, certainly in the U.S. Uh, terrorist attacks um, so far, um, fortunately. And yet, worldwide, that year, 2001, there were. 3,547 um, uh, deaths. Well, now, you know, again, I want to emphasize I don't minimize the importance of that or the need to protect the country, but about the same number of Americans died that year from drowning. Uh, about three times as many died that year from gun-related homicides. Uh, that's just the homicides, never mind the suicides. And about five times as many uh, in 2001 uh, died in alcohol-related motor vehicle accidents. So, you know, we've got to we've got to put things in proportion. And 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 why do we need to do that? Okay, we need to do that to calm ourselves down, <laughs> partly, uh, but we also need to do it so that we spend our own emotional energy, our own financial resources, and much more importantly, our national energy, our collective energy, our collective resources, in ways uh, that protect us best. And I guess what what it goes in your next edition, and I think you're you're sort of plagued with an obligation to keep putting out new editions as things occur. That um, while we're we're juggling which kind of X-ray machine to put in the airports, we've got an interstate bridge that's collapsed uh, north of Seattle. You know, the whole our infrastructure is not being attended to while uh, various the, while the security sector is just proliferating. Like I, I want to say and emphasize, like crazy. Well, that's right. And, um, uh, you know, we, whether we can do both and how we do both is an important question, but we certainly are going to need to do that. Uh, you know, when we, when we don't invest in safety measures and in, in uh, the, the kinds of basic <laughs> uh, um, infrastructure that you're talking about, like roads and bridges and so forth, uh, you know, we put ourselves at much greater risk. Uh, as a society, uh, and and you know the, the more that we 
that we take our attention away from those kinds of things, the worse off we're going to be. Another key area that I talk about a lot in the yes, book yes. Um, is healthcare, um, and by uh, the declining public investments in healthcare. And fortunately, there's been some turnaround uh, with the current presidential administration. Um, but in many ways, um, the, the, the availability of health care uh, has been terrible for uh, many sectors of the public uh, for quite a while. For many generations, right. Right. And you know, at, at every dollar that's invested wisely in preventive health care or in uh, non-emergency treatment uh, has tremendous, uh, tremendous benefits. Right. Oh, and so... Um, <laughs> where to start with all of this uh, material? Um, so, I, well, I'm I'm going to use another example that's going to be in your next edition is the congressional obsession with the IRS sorting out the uh, massive applications and applying for the rules in the 501c4, while huge corporations are avoiding altogether their tax uh, responsibilities. So it's sort of like we keep the the. Leadership in the House is pointing to this uh, hamster wheel of of smaller expenditures and smaller consequences of, of the IRS management here versus where, you know, Apple, Apple ought to be anting up a whole lot more for our federal treasury. If I figured out it's about um, that there's a shift that the household income taxes are eight times larger than the share of corporate income taxes in the federal treasury. That's so so backwards. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I haven't looked at that one. one. One one thing I do, you know, I'm an academic and, you know, and a researcher. So until I know we're able to know enough about a particular um, event or circumstance, you know, I don't, I don't say a lot about it. So we'll see where that current one goes. Um, what's certainly true, what I think we can say without question, um, is that further distrust, the promotion of further distrust, um, and scaremongering about tax agencies um, isn't going to benefit us very much. Um, and this time, you know, it's being done by conservatives or the right. Um, it's often done by uh, liberals and the left. Um, so, you know, it's kind of across the board. It makes for a pretty thankless job by those um, who need to collect the revenues. Certainly. Uh, and, you know, I think in e- each of these cases we need to... Uh, to treat seriously um, what kind of um, position we're putting uh, those those sorts of people who do that kind of work in, um, but you know, and, and I I'm particularly concerned about again um, the the really small dangers that are blown way out of proportion, um, and how we how we miss the big ones. Right, um, we are. You know, and so. Um, what I would say about the example you were just giving um, is uh, it, it's an example of a, of a way that a, a lot of uh, attention goes in the wrong direction, and and um, it's what I call I like to call misdirection. Yes, misdirection, and there's a and uh, bum, 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 and anecdotes. Oh, misdirection, and um, I'm trying to figure where else. I... Uh, and anecdote uh, and, and the use of anecdotes in place of actual trends. Correct. Um, and those are, from my research, I, I would suggest that those are the two major techniques, um, or certainly two of the few major techniques, 
that fear mongers use, whether they're politicians, media, advocacy groups, advertisers, that are used um, very effectively, very consistently. In the case of misdirection, um, and the example you raised is a good one, um, basically what's going on is an uh, individual, usually a big group, uh, that has an interest in, in uh, distracting the public's attention away from something they don't want the public to be attending to, or many things they don't want the public or, or voters, in many cases, to be attending to, um, they, mis- they misdirect the attention. The, the term itself comes is a magician's term. Yes. You know, if, I, if I want to make a coin disappear from my left hand, I've got to get you to look at my right hand briefly while I get rid of the coin. Um, and, you know, if I don't want to be dealing with lots of serious other serious issues like those having to do with the economy, for example, or the increasing disparity, um, extreme disparity in wealth uh, in the U.S. Uh, and the, and the, the damage burden. that that does to the, the middle class and, 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 and working class, then, um, you know, it's good for me to get your attention directed elsewhere. Um, and uh, um, that's been done in a whole number of ways. A lot of what I'm interested in is how that shifts um, and who does it? So, you know, we it, it changes frequently enough that um, especially younger people uh, don't remember even what the last trick was, right? So, correct. Um, you know, and most of the time uh, in the 20th century, uh, the misdirection was to crimes uh, by young people. Um, certainly in the 19 19- uh, 70s and 80s and 90s, that was the case, uh, where especially young males and even more so young males of color um, uh, were uh, the focus of attention for every ill. And then for a, a while, uh, so were young women, uh, specifically pregnant teenagers. Pregnant teenagers, single mothers, and African anti-Semitic African males. I mean, you, you have them all in there, and great examples. And I, I just want for anybody who's just joined us on Ask a Leader, my guest is Dr. Barry Glasner, author, sociologist, and currently president of, Youth, of Lewis and Clark College. Uh, he's the author of The Culture of Fear, Why Americans Are Afraid of the Wrong Things, here on Ask a Leader, 88.9 FM and Irvine, streaming all over the world on www.kuci.org. And we're talking about who was vilified uh, in the 70s and the 80s to sort of the, the trick over there to divert attention from what's going on, what's ailing in, in delivery of health care, in redistribution of wealth, in uh, uh, um, the quality of an access of uh, universal access to education and that kind of thing. And it really, um, it, it, it was a huge drain. And I want to ask, um, has the anti-Islamic sentiment replaced uh, some of those dreads of those other um, demographic segments that you talked about in the earlier in the 70s and the 80s. Yeah, I think what's been really uh, interesting and significant in that um, is the group that was demonized um, uh, during uh, the earlier period, during the 90s in particular, um, were these young males uh, uh, from the U.S. Uh, and you know, the Newsweek ran headlines like "The Lull Before the Storm." You know, there were books saying, um, talking about, and, and magazines talking about teenage time bombs. Um, you may remember William Bennett, the former Secretary of oh, Education, yes. who now seems to make his living as a full-time moralizer. Um, <laughs> and, 
at one point in, in the late 90s, um, he proclaimed that America's cities were going to be uh, victimized by what he called a paradigm-shattering wave of ultraviolent, morally vacuous young people, some called the super predators. Wow. Well, you know, those people didn't come um, and weren't going to come. So then what happened, right, just a few years later, we have 9-11 in 2001, right, and suddenly the whole story changes, the narrative changes. Um, and the way I would describe these two different ones was first we had what you might call a sick society story, right? This was the notion that American society was sick, it was collapsing from within, you know, William Bennett and others were big proponents of that. Then comes the attack, and that story no longer works, right? You can't talk about, you can't go to war, or multiple wars, um, and talk about um, heroic soldiers and young people going off to fight and so forth um, when you're, you, you've, you're, you know, you're also calling them sick and perverted. Um, and mm. so, you know, the story changed. And what happened was, of course, it changes now to external enemies who are, again, young, typically men, right, young men of color, um, in this case, um, uh, you know, from other countries, right? Right. Uh, um, so the storyline is not all that different in certain ways, but very different in other ways. And it's important to understand, see, for especially for the current generation that's in college and a little older than that, um, and, and especially those who are now in high school, uh, they're getting a break, most of them. Um, they're not being demonized the way uh, the previous generation was. Uh, and so, you know, it, there, there's a shift, right? They, the caricature has shifted. Yeah, and they're not getting a break in other ways because there's been a disinvestment in education. Right. Mass, massive. Um, but in, in, in certain ways, you know, it's, it's a great advantage not to be, uh, not, you know, not to be the focus of the sphere monitor. Well, I hate to say this, our time is about nil at this point, but I, what I wanted to do was just make the last question. I had so many, many more, but I wanted to know if this culture of fear is an American phenomenon or, I mean, I see how our media sort of techniques are bleeding into the media in other countries, but is this just an American kind of a thing or um, in your, from your uh, training as a sociological academic? Yeah, so I study American society, um, and um, I'm not an expert on others, but I can tell you my book has been very well received and translated into a bunch of languages elsewhere. And so I get a lot of, you know, mail and so forth, suggesting that in some places there's the story is similar to here. One big difference here, though, is uh, the is the nature of the media. You don't have the kind of cable news really anywhere else. Um, in the world, and you don't have the kind of local news coverage, you know, here the motto is, if it bleeds, it leads. Right. It's really hard to find that elsewhere in the world. Okay, well, that's a, that, there's a little bit of a consolation there, but I, I know there's more to cover, and I would like to uh, reserve the, offer, the, um, the opportunity to take up more of what we are um, trying to address today, Dr. Glasner, if you'll be so kind to do that. Okay, great. Well, thanks for inviting me. Well, thank you, Dr. Barry Glasner, author and sociologist and the um, author of The Culture of Fear, Why Americans Are Dreading the Whole Wrong Things. And he'll be, uh, we'll hope to have you back again. I'm glad that I could meet you at the LA Times Book Fair, and I hope to meet you again on KUCI. Okay, thank you again. Thank you. 
we're going to we're going to turn this show over to George Rosales. Um, I don't have um, I don't have uh, time for any announcements, but I will bring um, you uh, George Rosales next next week. We're going to have on the show um, a celebration of the hundredth anniversary of Stravinsky's Rite of Spring, taking it up with uh, Lisa Noggle and John Crawford in the dance department, and then in the second half will be Dr. Justin. Lynn, Rehab and Revive Physical Therapy to set us straight about that increasingly famous seven-minute workout. Stay tuned. Thank you for listening.